0: and welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talk in Migration is supported by the Center for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield, and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. In the last episode we spoke about why ethnic discrimination in immigration policy is wrong. Since then Donald Trump has enforced the so-called Muslim ban on immigration which discriminates based on nationality in practice and on religion in rhetoric. In this episode, we'll talk about another Trump policy, which is his promise to build a wall at the Mexican border. But I'll spare you too much Trump talk, and instead my guests will discuss the impact on immigrants for Latin America and the wider question of refugee settlement and immigration in Latin America. So with me to discuss these questions is Dr. Marcia Vera Espinosa, who's a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Sheffield, working on the project Prospects for International Migration Governance. Marcia has previously researched the experiences of resettlement and integration of Palestinian and Colombian refugees in Chile and Brazil. We're also joined by one of our master's students here at the University of Sheffield, Esteban Sanchez Botero, who is from Colombia and who studies for a degree in intercultural communications and international development. I started by asking Esteban and Marcia how the wall against Mexico might affect migrants and migration from Latin America at large.
1: I think uh, even though the wall is intended to like stop Mexican migration, uh, it is more of a political statement than a physical barrier for Latin American migration. Because, for instance, the wall is intended to be just 1,000 miles long and the border with Mexico is 1,000 Nine hundred miles, mm-hmm. so there's gonna be still some territory that's gonna be um, uncovered by the wall. So it's I I feel it's more that of a of a political statement of Trump saying, okay, I'm I'm strengthening my immigration policy, and I'm strengthening my vision towards the Latin community, because uh, you know migration routes from Colombia they are not they're usually, I mean Colombians do take a plane to get to the states. Mm. Uh, So the wall is more like, we feel it more like a threat to our, I don't know, to our possibilities of staying in the United States, Mm. I feel sort of, more than a physical barrier. And uh, what Colombians fear the most is that uh, immigration policy in the States is going to get tougher, more than the actual fact of building the wall. Because, yeah, the wall is more intended for the Mexican migration than it is for a fact, that Mexicans are the most, the community with most migrants in the US, but the rest of Latin American countries uh, don't see the world as, as this physical barrier, they see it as a, a political sort of mm. clash between the US and the rest of the, and the population that lives south of the world, sort of.
2: Yeah, I agree with Esteban. I think it's a very strong symbolic, not only for the Latin Americas but the US community as well. And it comes with this idea, not only from Trump, but before this idea of deterrence, of keeping, keeping people out, you know? Mm. So you give the idea of control to your own voters and your own population, but also you give the idea of you cannot come inside. And it's interesting because Indeed, Mexicans are one of the largest communities in the U.S., but the numbers have been going down since the financial crisis in 2008. So it's not that there's a massive influx of Mexicans, no more than before. Uh, And as you say, many of the Mexicans, indeed a lot of people cross the border, but already the border is very securitized, you know, very militarized. There's already a fence. So it's not that there's no border. That's a mistake, you know. And most people, what they do is, as you say, they go by plane. Like many Latin Americans say, we go there, you know. Mm -hmm. And how people stay in an irregular situation is because they overstay their visas. So again the wall is a more symbolic and discriminatory measure of course. What I see as a more threatening and worrying situation is the pressure that is going to put in Mexico. Because Mexico is in a geopolitical, you know, and a strategic position that is in between the States and Central America. So Mexico has all the dynamics. It's a transit country, it's a receiving country, you know, it's a sending country and nowadays it's also a return country. So basically, I think the pressure is going to be actually in how Mexico manage all these different migration dynamics, you know.
0: Mm, that's interesting. So what's the, what's the politics about that <coughs> in Latin America? Like how is mm. Mexico, what's its relation with the other uh, Latin American countries in this respect?
2: Mm. So when we went to do interviews now last June as part of the MIGPLUS project that we work with Andrew Getz, we did some interviews and we spoke with... Different people related with the decision making of migration. Some of them working with the US, you know, and making sure that the Mexican communities were okay there, but also some working with Central America and what they call the Northern Triangle, you know, Honduras, Salvador, Guatemala, etc., where people are fleeing because of like a strong violence in those narco traffic as well. So, what happened is many of these people were trying to cross through Mexico to reach the United States. But crossing Mexico is very dangerous, and they cross what they call La Bestia, which is this massive train, you know, that you have to jump on and try to cross entire Mexico. But it's super dangerous because within Mexico, there's gangs taking advantage of these people. So they're like uh, one of the policymakers we were talking there. He said that the, the, the bestia is divided in three sections. The first one, they steal everything you bring with, you know, like all your belongings, everything you brought from your country. The second one, they might put you to work. They might try to, you know, rape if you're a woman. It's very vulnerable in terms of rights of people trying to cross the train. So many of them, they realize they cannot reach the United States, and they stay in Mexico, which wasn't their intended destination. Mm. So now Mexico, what they were trying to do, they launched a new migration law in 2011. And the law has been working. It was in the making for many years. You know, they were trying to work in a new law that was respecting human rights, but also trying to manage migration. And there, were no, there was no political consensus, because in Mexico, of course, immigration wasn't a priority at that time. And what happened is that at the beginning, I think it was 2010, um, they found 70 people dead in, in, in the north of Mexico, and they were all killed by one of these gangs, one of the narcotraffic uh, gangs in the me- north of Mexico, and all of them were immigrants from Ecuador, from Honduras, from Central America in general, you know. And it was a massive amount of people that, that they found. And all media, you know, uh, reported that and people knew about that. And that was the trigger that pushed for a new migration law. And when was that? Huh? Was that 2011? I, the, the law came out in 2011, right. the new yeah. migration mm-hmm. law. And the law wasn't perfect. So when you speak with people, they say we could have done better. But the circumstances push us to have a legislation now. What happened after, despite that the government of Peña Nieto is not well received by the public, you know, what organizations and NGOs working in Mexico valued is that they had the law and they were working with different legislations to strengthen the law and make it better. But what they managed to do is create like a national development strategy, and within the national development strategy, migration had its own strand, and in that one, it's like a national program of migration from 2014 to 2018, and in that one, gather. All people from the uh, political world, you know, from the um, civil servants, from the government, from different strands from the governments, from NGOs, and from political parties. And they came together to work in that draft. And they thought that that was a huge accomplishment. So everything looked very nice on paper. But now the challenge, of course, was implementation. So how we implement this legislation to make people, one, try to cross in a safe way through Mexico, also offer like, the regularization ways that they can um, standardize their condition in the country or you know if they want to stay, that they have the the ways to stay in Mexico. So they were working in all those different dynamics. And when we did the interview, this is was in the shadow of the presidency of Donald Trump. Mm. But at the moment, it still was like they were hopeful that was not going to happen. So how does that change now? Um, is something that we have to see. The worry they were having at that moment in June 2016 was the huge amount of people returning to the United States through deportation and how they integrate those Mexicans. that were Mexican nationality, but they live all their life in the United States, mm. you know, because they don't have really connection with Mexico in terms of, like, living there. They spoke English, but sometimes they were overqualified and they couldn't find a proper job, you know, according to their expectations in the country. That was the challenge at that point.
0: That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I was just... Oh, did you want to add something? Sorry.
1: I was going to say, I think it's the same thing with Colombia. You've got a lot of generations that now are sort of US born and bred. Mm. And bringing those generations back to Colombia would be a huge challenge, like to integrate them to Colombian culture and try to, I don't know if reculturizes the world, but you know, try to adapt them back again. It would be like a massive challenge for the Colombian authorities
0: yeah because it's not really uh, you know if you're growing up in another country uh but uh, you know the so with the trumps the trump administration's policy so not just the war but also this so-called muslim yeah. ban um there's been a lot of increase in Islamophobia? Well, yeah. there seems to be a lot of increase in Islamophobia. A lot of Muslims don't feel safe because the policies are, like you're saying with the wall, the the, the, um, the ban on travel uh, is very much symbolic as well, and it's really sort of targeting Muslims, so they don't feel as safe anymore. Do you think that's the same with Latinos living in the US, that they feel maybe increased prejudice? I mean, does your family, estimate feel like perhaps it's less safe now because what Trump is doing is not just putting in place these policies which may or may not actually have that much of an effect but actually um it's just kind of stirring more prejudice
1: Uh, i think it does i mean as all latino families we used to make fun of it a little bit but that's normal (laughs) it's part of our (laughs) cultural i don't know way of seeing things but we do feel threatened and we do fear that trump's immigration policy is going to be stronger not just because of the wall but because he's going to target a whole lot of a bigger set of immigrant population the States, not just people who commit felonies or those type mm. of things, but he's going to target uh, and try to seek for more, a bigger migrant population. So what you hear from Latinos, at least in the Florida background, is that there's a fear that some immigration policy m- might bring some of us back yeah. to the country.
0: You said yeah. that your, your family has got quite a lot of... Um, American friends who aren't uh, who aren't from any uh, Latino country, do they feel like their attitudes towards them are changing now? Do they feel like, you know, just the way they are perceived by other Americans is perhaps changing because of this sort of heightened rhetoric?
1: Mm, it's interesting. I think Florida is like a, an isolated case because they sort of got used to Latino immigration and it's a state that interacts with Latino communities a lot. But I do feel that in some upper states, uh, the attitude towards uh, Latino immigration is changing a lot. And we are not being viewed as as this community that is like helping their economy or improving the life in the states, but more of as a threat. Uh, As I told you, it's not the case of Florida, because Florida is a little bit more inclusive with immigrants. So we haven't felt this huge separation. Uh, Anyway, there's, I mean, Latinos do, like, isolate themselves a little bit in Florida, at least, like Latino communities, they used to uh, circle around themselves and they don't mix too much with American communities, as I see it, but uh, the the discrimination hasn't been that strong so far.
0: Yeah, I guess it differs a lot uh, over the country, but that's, yeah, that's interesting.
2: Uh, yeah, can I oh, add you, something not, to yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, uh, it's interesting what you were saying in terms of attitudes. I think the wall and the ban, they do have symbolic, but the ban also has like very practical damage to families. You know, I have Iranian friends that have been affected by the ban. Now people live in the United States that's going to be separated from their families. I think what is important also mentioned about the ban and the wall is that at some point these um, measures that can be temporary but can also have lasting consequences can put at risk the right to seek asylum so we're talking here about mostly about immigration but if you think the ban is going to restrict people getting to the united states Mm -hmm. actually you are forbidding the person's right to seek asylum in a country if they need to and that's something also that we need to question more and be more alert about how we're going to manage that not only for the muslim community but also for these people fleeing conflict from central america or somewhere else.
0: Yeah, yeah. And speaking of of refugees and asylum seekers, I thought we could maybe move on to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were just speaking a little bit before we started here about about Syrian refugees in particular, Mm -hmm. uh, because Trump has now banned Syrian refugees indefinitely. uh, uh, But... Uh, this situation seems to be different in Latin American mm-hmm. countries, in particular Brazil seems to have had some Virginia. sort of fast track system.
1: And Esteban, mm-hmm. you mentioned Venezuela. They're trying to, well, they say they want to host 20,000 Syrian immigrants. They want to welcome them. Uh, and we'll see how it goes, because one thing is to say it, and the other one is to develop the infrastructure to, you know, to gather them around and to receive them with all the, I don't know, the proper institutions and infrastructure to do it. Especially in Venezuela, it's in kind of a crisis, political crisis and instability. So we'll have to see how Venezuela manages to um, cope their internal conflict with this new migration of Syrian immigrants. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think um, Latin America strength its commitment with refugee. Um, they have been doing it since they, st- they signed the Cartagena Declaration. So the Cartagena Declaration of 1984 is like the main instrument of refugee protection in the region. And it was relevant because it came together all the countries of the region, but also because then they enhanced the definition of whatever is a refugee. So they also recognize people that is fleeing from a country because they have a, an internal war or because they have been subject to foreign invasion, etc. you know, mm. all those ones are also including the Cartagena Declaration. And what happened after is that every 10 years, countries of the region commemorate you know, the, the Cartagena Declaration and they strengthen their commitment. So they come up with new plans and actions of how they can help and improve the situation of asylum seekers and refugees in the region. And, and this came for different reasons. One, because many of the countries came out from dictatorship regimes, so they wanted to show that they were very good partners in the international community. And they also they wanted to give back the, you know, and kind of return in terms of gratitude what other countries did for their own citizens. You know, that's kind of the explanation why there was so much emphasis in, in strengthening this refugee protection. All this was firstly aimed for the refugees within the region. But Latin America has very strong ties with Arab community. We have one of the largest Palestinian communities living in Brazil and Chile since like the 19th century when they start to arrive. Um, and for instance, Argentina, they have a very large Syrian population. And there's also a lot of Argentinians living in Syria, historically, you know. So when the Syrian crisis started Latin, America started, Latin America said that they wanted to commit, they wanted to help. In terms of numbers, the help of Latin America is, of course, much smaller than other traditional receiving countries. But it's not less important. One, because it tells us, tell us about, a little bit about like South-South cooperation and how countries Latin America can help other regions in problem. So Brazil, since 2013, they installed this kind of type of humanitarian visa in terms to, you know, help Syrian refugees. And they also have a resettlement program. So a lot of Syrians arrive by themselves. And and why they arrive to Latin America? Because they perceive that they are far away from conflict zones. Mm. And they see that maybe are more stable politically than other regions. Uh, Not that it's completely true what we see now today in Latin America, but that was probably the perception at that time. And uh, so Chile and Brazil, together with Uruguay, Paraguay and Argentina, they already had resettlement program. So there's a difference, you know, you can seek asylum and you can get the refugee status recognized or not, or you can come to resettlement. So basically you are in a first country of asylum and then you go to a, a third country, basically, um, that, accept, that admit you as a refugee with all your rights recognized. Uh, and Brazil started to do that already. Um, there, there was some fear that they might stop it after you know the change in the government, and that they have an unelected government now. Uh, Argentina also had a resettlement program quite strong. They also have now a new government that is not completely um, and is not 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 respectful from the international convention, but it's not very likely to receive more migrants or refugees. And then you have Chile, that they promised for a long time receive Syrian refugees. And just now they're putting a resettlement program together. Um, and also you have the promise of Venezuela and other countries as well. So in, in comparison with other regions, we can say that Latin America, it is helping Syrian refugees as much as they can. And they're trying to integrate them. And they're trying to pick it up from the previous experience that they had with Palestinian refugees in terms of mm. reception. So do you think attitudes...
0: Are different towards refugees than perhaps in Europe or in the US. Maybe, I don't know what your experience is from Colombia mm. and, and Chile, yeah, I mean, just from, you know, when you speak to you, um friends and family, for example, because in, in, mm-hmm. so in, in, in the US and in Europe, now refugees are viewed very much as a threat and like a security threat. And that, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's different perception in Latin mm-hmm. America.
1: I think it's different, yeah, because uh, as Marcia said, we are kind of far away geographically from the conflict. And we're not completely isolated. We know what's happening, but we are not as involved as Europe and the U.S. So we don't have this strong prejudice against receiving refugees. That's why I think Latin America could be a very good ground to host uh, Syrian refugees because Mm -hmm. it's not that we are indifferent to the conflict or that we don't have any political position, but we are not as strongly involved as here in Europe or as in the U.S. So for me, it seems like a suitable place for... Refugees, I, think.
2: I think it's interesting in terms of attitudes, you know, because, for instance, the southern core of Latin, of Latin America, you know, Chile, Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, um, they receive a lot of Colombian refugees, you know, that they have a long conflict, mm. more than 60 years. Um, and the attitudes toward Colombian refugees wasn't as good as it was, for instance, to the Palestinian refugees. Mm-hmm. And then there are, I think different reasons to understand that. Colombians, they were kind of coming in a like a mixed migration, asylum seeker, you know, roots and, and a status that people in this country didn't know really what it meant to be a Colombian refugee. You know, they didn't know. They kind of create a lot of stereotypes for Colombians. Um, with the Palestinians, they were a bigger number than the, the Colombian refugees in terms of the numbers that arrive uh, annually to resettlement. But also they embody what people understand for a refugee. Mm. You know, they wear a hijab. They come from a refugee camp, you know? Colombian they were more urban, displaced people, and then they came to Chile or Brazil or Argentina. So in the research that I did with research of communities, Palestinian and Colombian refugees, in Chile at least, Colombians felt much more discriminated than the Palestinian refugees. Mm. Palestinian refugees felt more welcome, you know? They appear in the television, they appear in media, they, a lot, there was a lot of research done about them. Instead, Colombians, they were more silenced, they don't talk about them in the media, only when they talk about them in together with a larger migrant population. So it, with, I think with the Syrians can be quite similar in a way. They embody what people in Latin America understand what is a refugee. More in a, it kind of is a victimization kind of point of view, you know. Uh, but there's of course some security concerns like elsewhere. Not, not as much, I think, from the population itself, but from the government. Right. So that's why resettlement is also attractive, because in resettlement is the government together with the UNHCR and the NGOs that go and interview the families before they arrive to the country.
0: Yeah, so are there a lot of um, Middle Eastern refugees or asylum seekers who uh, who seek asylum outside of the resettlement program? You mean in Latin in yeah. South
2: America? Yeah, of course, yeah. We yeah. have... Um, I think until the beginning of 2000, and actually maybe not until five years ago, Colombia was the largest refugee community within the region. Yeah, um, so it's more the internal... It was the yeah. internal, but not only. There were mm. the small numbers. I don't know, because people also been smuggled. So, For instance, the first story that I covered of refugee back in 2004 was two guys from Sierra Leone that they jumped in a boat in Sierra Leone and they didn't know where they go, they, they were going. They just jumped from the boat when they arrived close to Chile because that was the piece of land that they saw. It's not that they wanted to get to Chile, you know. That's what they were getting because the boat stopped there. And they jumped from the boat and they swam to land and they were like, we want to seek asylum. And in Chile, we're like, what do we do with these guys? You know, We didn't even know that much about what to do. And we had a very poor legislation at that time. So many people arrived to Chile maybe without knowing or because they're smuggled, you know, into Brazil, etc., so you have a, a population coming from RDC, for instance, or from Senegal or at some point from other African countries, and they have been you know, requesting refugees, Chile and Brazil and Argentina, etc. The same with Afghan refugees at some point and Iraqis refugees. It's a smaller population, but they have been seeking asylum, Chile, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, etc. But the main population has been, for instance, Colombians now, and before were Peruvians. Peruvian one of the largest refugee groups in the 90s. And then were the Colombian refugees, yeah. Uh,
0: and you mentioned already that the attitudes towards those different, um, <coughs> different refugees are quite varied. So that's interesting. And then also, I guess you, uh, in addition to refugees, there'll be a lot of other uh, migrants. Okay, yeah. So I don't know if
2: the attitudes are different there. Well, that's yeah, an interesting well. thing, and you can put in comparison with Trump. Um, I'm Chile, so that's why I'm drawing a lot of examples from Chile, you know. We have a presidential election next year, and a few, I think last month, one of the candidates played the immigration card. It's not a card that you play that much in Chile. There are more pressing issues, but he came out in media saying that all the, you know, robbery and high-end delinquency and, um, and, and bad behavior was because of immigrants. And that created a massive reaction. Mm. What he tried to do is pick it up, the discourses of Brexit, you know, of Trump in the United States, and kind of put immigration at the forefront of one of the pressing issues for Chileans. Uh, and it happened the same, you know, a lot of people pick it up that car and they think, yeah, because there's so much, immig- so much more immigrants, that's why we have less jobs, that's why cost- the quality of life has gone down, etc. But also create the other movement. People say, okay, you cannot play that car in Chile, you know, we do have more immigrants, but actually Chile is part of one of the OECD countries and we have, I don't know, I think... I think it's not even 10% of migrant population. I think it's like the 3% Mm. of the total population is migrant, which is very low, you know. It's not even as high as the rest of the countries. Has increased migration? It has. Um, One, because Chile, Brazil, Argentina have done quite well economically and they are quite stable. So migrants from other parts of the region have come to Chile, Brazil, and Argentina to pick up work. So Peruvians, Bolivians, you know, people um, from Colombia, from Venezuela now, uh, and from Central America. And also a large population from Haiti that came Mm -hmm. after the earthquake, um, not even before I think, but after the earthquake, there was a massive displacement of Haitians into Latin America. Some of them went to Brazil, and many of them also have gone to Chile. So what happened now is that we have, of course, more diversity of population than what we had before. All of us in Chile look like me. We are a mixture between indigenous population and Spaniard, Spaniards that colonized <laughs> us, you know? We have brown skin, but we had a very lack of other population. And now you go to Chile and you see more people. So attitudes is mixed, you know? Some people say that this is good, that this opens us to globalization and to the world, and we should be able to, you know, welcome people. Other ones say that no, that things are under control. So you see that how the speeches are being reproduced as well, mm. in line with what happened in other countries.
1: Mm-hmm. I think Colombia, the issue of migration is not as big as in Chile, because, as you say, Colombians tend to go to Chile very <laughs> often. But uh, what we're having now in Colombia is a huge uh, wave of Venezuelan immigration, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the conflict in venezuela we're getting a lot of uh, newcomers to the cities to the rural areas so we're trying to like to put this into the agenda and to make it a a priority now because colombia has been focusing on lots of other stuff in our armed conflict and and we do have more migrants than incoming migrants i don't know yeah. if that makes sense yeah. but yeah we we are not used to migration so we still have a lot to work in how to develop migration policies and how to welcome uh, these newcomers from Venezuela so we're still struggling still looking for ways to uh, like to enhance our migration legislation in Colombia yeah
0: one thing that is interesting is that I mean Europe in a way been through uh, at least Sweden been through the same you know going from being an immigration country mm. to being more of an immigration uh, or to being definitely an immigration country and that changes in a way not only obviously you know institution and anymore you, you know SMM, what you're talking about but it changes also maybe the self-image of the country. Yeah. Do you feel like this is something that's happening
2: in I the region? Think if you think in terms of migration. um Chile, Brazil, Argentina again the the southern the southern corner of Latin America is uh, has they have been implemented a lot of neoliberal policies which you know included open markets and opened themselves to the world. So you know, one of the things that you do when you open with globalization is that you not only move goods or services, you need to move people. You know, so they were good for that, so they like it. The, what they call the high-skilled migrants or yeah. the good migrant is against you know, against the bad migrant, the ones that are poor-skilled or actually the the ones that come to do the jobs that none of the Chileans, Brazilians, Argentinians wanted to do. Um, that happened for sure. You know, um, it has changed in terms of policy. Latin America in general, so one is the migration, the refugee policy that we talked before has been quite consolidated. So many countries in Latin America, they have quite progressive uh, refugee law, Chile, Brazil, Argentina, that not necessarily goes with the migration law. Okay, they have been separately. So for instance, Brazil, just now, this year, they come out with a new refugee, with a new migration law. The one before came from dictatorship time. In Chile, we still have the dictatorship law we haven't been able to change the migration law. And now it's a very contentious topic, you know, people is very worried about migration. Um, but in general, in the region, the, the position also has changed. At some point, they tried to have this integration process to Mercosur, UNASUR, more like economic integration. And since that didn't work, what they tried to strengthen was the social agenda of those integration process. And migration was part of that social agenda. So the focus was like in human rights. So basically, we're going to have a human rights emphasis uh, within the region. And they try to strengthen, you know, facilitate visas within Mercosur countries that you don't need a visa or a passport anymore. You can just go with your ID card. Mm. Kind of trying to echo what happened in the EU. The chief now is, and this maybe echoes what happened in, in other parts of the world, is not that much measures of deterrence as we see in other regions, but really, really like... um. Um, an emphasis in control and management. So basically, to know who is moving through the region, how they're moving, and how are they regularised, if they're regularised or not. Um, and that means that they need to search more information within countries of the region, that they need to strengthen their communication channels and everything, but also they need to update the legislation. So that's kind of the political side. From attitudes from people, That I think that's very mixed. That's very mixed... Um, we were ascending country and during this the 70s and 80s many chileans had to flee the you know chile because of dictatorship regime Uh, and now many chileans leave because we have the means to live you know Mm. you remember that not everybody has the means to leave a country so there's lots of Chileans living abroad so we are fine with that we're just not that uh, that people is not happy with other coming into the country um and also come with a political uh, from a policy from the state in the case of Brazil, with the refugees in particular, because Brazil is massive, they try to spread them to different parts of the country. So if you have one Colombian family in one little town, that's not a threat. That's actually quite cute. They have this beautiful accent, yeah. you know. They're super exotic. They <laughs> dance some else's Sansa, you know. They really they were felt more welcome. In Chile, because it's so centralized, all refugees at least came to Santiago. And many migrants, Colombians at least, they come either to Santiago or to or like three main cities. So they, you see them more, you know. It might be not, they're not as big in, in terms of numbers, but you see them more. And that creates a thread between brackets for the Chinese themselves, mm. you know. And that means that some Colombians... Um, some of them are doing okay, but other ones are living in, in precarious situations. Because what happened is that many Latin American countries are very racist with their own neighbors. I don't know how it's in Colombia, but in Chile, yeah, and that in Zipal, it's like that. You're racist with your own neighbors, you know, with mm-hmm. la- other Latin American countries, with the ones that look like you or the ones that look like you don't want to look. You know, you don't want to look yourself in the mirror. So what happened, from, for instance, after the financial crisis in 2008 is that many Europeans, particularly Spaniards, went to look for jobs in Latin America. And they were very much welcome, mm. you know, because you have lighter skin. Uh, we, we, well, that's the way that we are educated as well with this idea of modernization, you know, criticizing very little the fact that we were colonized, etc., etc. But we discriminate much more are bolivian peruvians colombian uh, brothers and sisters you know it's much more difficult for them that means that in terminal like in practical terms um someone from colombia or venezuela might not find a place to rent because people that i interview they say that they pick up this, the phone and say are you peruvian no 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 are you colombian yeah okay i don't rent either peruvian or colombian i just don't like foreigners from latin america Oh, right. Yeah. Is
0: this something you recognize?
1: Yeah, okay. and it starts with small comments, because <coughs> I was talking to a Chilean friend the other day and he told me how, for example, Chileans feel that Colombian women, they, are, they tend to be very happy and they tend to go for Chilean husbands, so they say, oh, okay, let's beware of Colombian women, because they are charming and they, they come here for our husbands. Ah, oh, so, right. Yeah, even in those small things, you feel that there's a tension between some countries in Latin America. Yeah, they, they create no, stereotypes, it. you know. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And actually, do you feel yeah. like, yeah. Why do you think that is? Because I, I guess in Europe it's, I mean, there are stereotypes between sort of East and West. Mm. But within those regions, there's not, I mean, of course, there's France and the UK. But it's, I don't know how real it actually is. But, mm. um you know, like where I'm from, Scandinavia, is very much, you know, the opposite, that you are... I mean, there's basically... one well, not anymore, because of uh, because of the borders now to prevent refugees. But otherwise, there's pretty much been open borders between the Scandinavian countries mm-hmm. for for 60 years or something like that, and no one's really had any problem um, yeah. with it. So that seems to be a big contrast.
2: Yeah, I think in Latin America... Inter- I don't know how it's in Colombia. I am speaking from the case of Chile... Um, I think it's a way that we are educated as well, you know. When you look at the national curriculum, when you go into school, they teach you this the history, like, for instance, uh, South America or Latin, or America in general was discovered, not that it was colonized. So mm-hmm. they sell you this idea of modernization that I think is very strong in our minds. And we look it up, up to Europe, the United States, you know, and we appreciate very little what we have within our own region, I'm not saying everybody, this is a generalization, but in general terms, um, we look down to other communities that come to our country. So, for instance, Argentinians might do it with Chileans, they do it with Bolivians, Chileans do it with Peruvians, with Bolivians, and now with Colombians, you know. I don't know if in, in the case of Colombia, maybe they yeah, do it with Ecuador, you know. <laughs>
1: <Same> <laughs> and, and yeah. Especially with the, ne- the closest neighbors, like people from Panama, from Venezuela, we tend to authorize them a little bit or stereotype them and it's yeah I think it's an education issue like if we had this for example EU model of integration and more friendly view towards people from other countries like it's not work so well in this country though (laughs) 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 but I see a point yeah (laughs) yeah. Yeah. maybe further down it's working better yeah but it (laughs) might happen maybe (laughs) this idea
2: of the wall might strain our sense of like community within Latin America who knows hopefully you know it might happen as well, but but they create a lot of stereotypes that affect people's daily lives, you know? Yeah. In terms of Colombians, that they are narco traffickers, they are, I don't know, all the things that really, in people's daily life, when you interview Colombians, migrants, or refugees in Chile, affect them, you know? Because yeah. they don't want to feel like that. They don't feel like that, you know? And it's, they're being stigmatized for a conflict that they were affected by, but not that they were part of it. Yeah. So... It kind of, yeah, I think it has repercussions. The things that we say and that we don't think about it have repercussions on someone else in their daily life.
0: Just to finish this discussion on a slightly, well, slightly different note, slightly similar, about the integration mm. of uh, refugees uh, in particular. So this is obviously a big discussion mm. within Europe, um and some refugees, I mean some refugees struggle because they don't actually well if they're asylum seekers they don't immediately get sort of access a uh, rights to work uh but also many might struggle for uh for other reasons so how well are refugees integrated into sort of labor market and Mm. um just you know from an economic perspective as well how well do refugees do uh, when they come to countries like brazil
2: or chile or argentina Argentina? i think the legislation has advanced a lot in the last i don't know 15 years so when i started doing research on refugees in chile in 2004 uh, there was no legislation so, and people could be in a state of limbo for more than two years waiting to get a decision on their you know, the application to get the refugee status recognized and they didn't have work permit. So it was a very precarious situation. That improved now. And with the current legislation, what we have is that they can apply for you know, job permits. But also, as soon as you get your status recognized, you get permanent residency. Not even temporary, you get permanent residency. And that makes a huge change. Because also in Chile, everything is related with your ID card. So you have a number that tells you who you are, you know. And before, it used to be that refugees in Brazil and in Chile, their ID numbers said that they were refugees. And because we know very little about refugees, when you were looking for, you know, applying for a job, they would say, oh, but you're a refugee. What did you do in your country that you have to run away? So the understanding of what a refugee is, it was different. They thought they were doing something bad, that they had to escape. Not that they escaped persecution. That changed now. There's been a lot of work from civil society and also from refugee organizations in Latin America that they have accomplished these little, you know, um, goals of, for instance, not having their name uh, associated to being a refugee. In terms of integration, it's interesting because from a theoretical point of view, we have very little discussion of what we understand as a region about integration of refugees. The discussion in terms of theory has been more in the United States, you know, traditional receiving countries and Europe, in this way of understanding that it's a two-way process, that the, com- that the refugee community has to try to adapt and the receiving country also have to adapt to them. What we know from Latin America, in a way, from empirical research, that there's a lot been done in Latin America, uh, from Brazilian colleagues like Liliana Lira Jubilud, um. And from Chile as well, Carolina Stefani, Cristian Doña. There's a lot of colleagues writing from, you know, the experience of refugees and migrants in these countries. Um, what we know is that it's multi-actor and multi-dimensional. We know that it's not only the receiving community and the refugee because both of them are super heterogeneous, you know. So refugees are all different, but also the receiving community is very different. You have, you know, a different social class, you have a lot of inequality. So it's more complex than that. Mm. That's actually my next project is trying to understand how how do we define and operationalize and actually how integration is experienced in Latin America because we know very little. That was uh, a good question of me to ask then. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, is a very good question. But it's interesting because I think, depending on those, some refugees and depending on where they are, uh, when I interviewed for a previous project, refugees in a instance in Brazil, it was interesting that some Colombian refugees were doing better there than in than in Chile. OK, because of what I say, the distribution was like there was a small family in, a, in a, one community. They managed to create a lot of networks, you know, they managed to find a job. Some of them rebuild their lives in the terms of a Palestinians refugees. In Chile, they were much better, much better than in Brazil. But then there was another factors to play. The ones in Brazil tend to be older, you know, families that they had problems catching up with the language, you know, that they couldn't find a job, that they are not in age to work anymore. Uh, and in Brazil, in Chile, for instance, they gave them access to a house. And that really was important for the Palestinian refugees. That they didn't give to Colombians, by the way. They only gave to Palestinians because that helped them to create Ruth as well, you know, to have something for them. So I don't know. There was little differences. So I think the experience are varied in Latin America. And you can also you have the same with uh, refugees in Ecuador, for instance, or in Argentina. Uh, it will depend on where they are in the country. In which city they are and that's one important thing with latin america now one of the key actors in integration with the little understanding that we have of it in terms of theory is done by cities there's a key role taken by cities in latin american countries in terms of integration so we might have a good legislation but the problem is always implementations and cities have been at the forefront of trying to do something about that
0: Interesting. But right, I think we might uh, finish, I was going to ask you in the end Esteban, because you said that your family had only recently moved to the US from Colombia. Yes. Do you think now with, you know, these recent events that they will stay there or?
1: Mm, they're planning to. They're kind of in this limbo of waiting for what's going to happen, because, uh, you know, Trump has started to do a lot of things, he has been just in power for, what, two weeks or something, mm. and he's already starting to move the whole spectrum. So they're planning to stay. They're fearing of what might come with the new legislation because it's going to get definitely stronger. But, uh, well, we'll see how it goes. (laughs) This Trump phenomenon is changing and we never know what we're going to get.
0: To find out more about Marcia Vera Espinosa and Esteban sanchez Portero, and to listen to previous episodes, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com. That was all for this time. Thank you for listening.